0: Welcome to season four, Fostering Change, the number one podcast in adoption and foster care. You know, each week we speak to the most amazing good humans about topics that touch each and every one of us. If you have a guest suggestion or interested in sponsoring our podcast, please visit us at comfortcases.org. Now, sit back, enjoy, enjoy learn, get motivated, and let's speak to some fascinating guests. You know, I don't even know what's going on with this year, but it just seems to be flying by. And I think it has to do a lot with the amazing guests that I've been able to have on Fostering Change. You know, this is our fourth season. I have cannot thank you all enough for each and every one of you that tune in every single week. You know, last month in February, I was able to have my amazing son, Makai on. Um, What an unbelievable episode. If you haven't listened to that, You can go back to comfortcases.org. You can find those. You can also find them on our YouTube channel and subscribe because sometimes, you know, people say all the time I'm a little bit animated. So you see that more. And then also if you tune in on our YouTube channel, you actually get to see my beautiful babies who hang on the wall behind me. Well, you know what? My next guest, I absolutely love when I interview people who have a story. And by the way, we all have one, but it's whether or not we actually stop and put that story on paper to be able to lift other people up. Maybe there's one particular thing that someone writes within a book that truly could change whether or not how they look at something differently. And I truly believe that is the way it is with my next guest. You know, my next guest, I will tell you, I'm used to interviewing people that, you know, have been in the foster care system, age out of foster care somehow, but his story has got so many highs and lows that has so, you know, to do with foster care, refugee camp, I mean, so many things. So without any further introduction, I think I need, um, you know, I want to
1: welcome my friend, Morphine, welcome to Fostering Change. Thank you, Rob. Thank you for inviting me to be on the podcast. I've been catching up on some of the episodes and and your guests are really inspiring to hear about and to hear their stories and to, to see the platform that you are helping to give them.
0: Well, you know what? I truly do believe, thank you, by the way, for all of those kind words. I truly do believe that, you know, we need to be given more platforms for people to talk about our story because the more we talk about our story, the more normalized it will become. And what really, for me, is, you know, being a child who grew up in the foster care system, having adopted five children out of foster care, it is the utmost important for me um, that we realize that, you know, there are people just like you and I. And by the way, this book, it's called Moon and Full, a modern day coming of age story. It was a great book, by the way, well written. And by the way, take it from somebody who's an author. I actually had a writer. Um, you just blew me out of the water. And I want to jump right in because you are actually a first generation Asian American. I want to know how, and you tell our listeners about coming over to America as a small little boy, which you were so young, you probably don't even remember. But tell me about that.
1: Um, so one, one quick clarification is, is I'm actually second generation. And so my uh, I was born in California, two Cambodian refugees, shortly after they moved to California um, from a from refugee camp in Thailand. So I think that just illustrates how the interweaving parts of the story and, and the different pieces that all come together and that become my story. And I think that's the story of many people who experience foster care is they come from all different backgrounds and they, they go through quite a bit, a lot of transitions in and out of home sometimes, and some find forever families and some don't. And so... My family largely spent ten years in a refugee camp, almost ten years, in a Thai refugee camp uh, in the '80s. Even though the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, the genocide happened between 1975-1979, a lot of folks were uh, folks that who couldn't afford to, you know, find a plane ticket early on before the genocide, or um, had the means to to escape to other countries. A lot of the the poor and working folks that escaped, ended up in a refugee camp in Thailand. And so my family was part of that and didn't come to California until the late 80s and uh, early 90s. And I was born in 91 in Stockton, California. And then we made our way to the East Coast to Maine in 1996.
0: So, so, you know, (sighs)
1: Wow. I mean, first of all, the thought that
0: your parents lived in a refugee camp for 10 years, you know, I've met many, many people who have experienced that. Their parents have experienced that. And, you know, it still baffles my mind. And by the way, I actually remember those days when it was on the news and, you know, when they were bringing children over, by the way, they were bringing the babies that were over. I actually have a couple of friends of mine who actually were part of that whole operations where they were bringing the babies over from the refugee camps, which again, I have a big issue with because you're splitting families up. And, yeah. you know, these parents were doing this because they wanted their child to have more than what was going on in the genocide that was happening, you know, and you and I, by the way, we'd have a podcast just all about that. And maybe that's one we should definitely do, my friend. But here you go. You go across. The, now, you go across the country, you come in, you land in Maine. By the way, I got to tell you, I'm a, I'm an East Coast boy and um, I know about weather change. But to live from California to go to Maine, that's got to be a culture shock right there.
1: Oh, it was. In the book, actually, when we the first year we were in, in Portland, or actually the second winter, was the big ice storm of 98, I believe it was. And so I remember we were all huddled in with, with the big mink blankets, the, the Asian blankets with tigers and, and what, whatnot. And the little heaters on the floor, the ones that glow red with the elements, and eating food out of cans because the refrigerator wasn't working or whatnot. So it was definitely, I think, a shock, but also a little magical, shall I say, because out in California, you know, my memories of California was we lived uh, mostly in San Diego after I was born in Stockton. I remember sort of dust, sort of dry, temperate kind of weather, And so when we arrived in Maine and and the first time I saw snow, I thought it was sort of like a magical experience. And I I ran out in my, you know, gym shorts and a T-shirt and was rolling around in the snow. And at that age, I'm sure you've had the same experience. At at a young age, you can can, uh, put up with the cold a lot longer than you can now and, and I can't step outside and, and be outside in the cold more than 10 minutes. So
0: Oh, let me tell you, I have four boys and a daughter and I'm shocked at times in the winter times when my boys are walking around in shorts and, you know, there's snow on the ground and I'm just like, or when they go to school and I'm like, don't you want a hoodie? And they're like, no. And I'm like, it's only 33 degrees, but you know, that's the way kids are. So you're sitting there, you remember, you know, the moments of, to me, I feel like it was a lot Of food insecurities within what you went through, by the way, and and as someone who's gone through that and has had children go through that, that's something you never forget. That's something that you never forget. So I, I'd like for you to take our listeners. And by the way, everybody, the book is called Moon in Full. I highly, highly recommend you read this book. You don't have to be a part of foster care. You don't have to be, but what I what I really loved about this book is you finding your grit, as I always say, you truly found your grit and and was able to overcome so much because you you should have been the statistic, by the way, and not, you know, where you are sitting today. as an author, and the fact your current job right now, you actually run a food bank.
1: I'm a community impact manager at the Good Shepherd Food Bank, which is the only statewide uh, food bank in the state of Maine. And, And so I work on our equity, culturally relevant food programs, which, you know, as you mentioned, I dealt with a lot of food insecurity. So I don't quite run the food bank, but I do run the program, the Community Redistribution Fund, which distributes funding to cultural organizations, ethnic community-based organizations to get food that actually is culturally responsive. Um, You know, moving the first shock, well, the second shock, shall I say, was not only being moved into a foster home, but switching from eating Cambodian food, rice, you know, eggs, Thai basil, those types of things, to then eating like mac and cheese and burgers and American food. And so I think that was a shock as well. And, and, and so for, for me, I always think about how did I get to the the space that I'm working in where, you know, I'm working both uh, advocacy and policy and food security, and it's all rooted in, in my upbringing, in my experience.
0: Well, you know, I really want to jump back to where the fact you were actually, you know, put in to foster care. When did that what when did that happen? Let our viewers and our listeners know. Okay, so you lived in a house, you had a mom and dad, you had a roof over your head. Yeah, your refrigerator didn't work. We see that all the time. It's called poverty. And, you know, but for you to be taken from your biological parents, what was that moment?
1: Yeah, it was, you know, my mom had men come in and out of her lives. So most of them, 90% of them, abusers, uh, violent drinkers, but largely she was a single mother with four kids. I was the oldest firstborn, and then I had three younger siblings. And I think the mental health that she, uh, trauma that she dealt with from the genocide and from the refugee camp. And from being displaced and in, and in the culture shock of coming to America, I think made her incapable of loving us in in all the ways that we expect mothers to to love us. And she was gone from the house a lot. I remember one weekend, it was just me, seven, eight, seven years old with all my youngers and brother, brothers and sisters at the house. And, you know, sorry for the details, but, you know, I was running around cause um, I was in pain cause of a urinary tract infection. And I was running around the low income housing development that we lived in, which had six different circles like cul-de-sacs and looking at in all the Cambodian homes for my mom and that entire weekend I couldn't find her and I couldn't get help to help ease this pain. And so that was, is an example of what we were dealing with. And, you know, the teachers caught on, the state caught on, got involved, caseworkers got involved. And we had a guardian at him who's, who was helpful. And one day I just got home from school. A caseworker was there, had black trash bags in her hand, handed them to me and my sister. By this time, my two youngest siblings were already taken out. So it was just me and my sister, the second oldest. And she handed us garb- black garbage trash bags and told us, put your special belongings, the things that you want to take with you, and we're going to take you somewhere for a while. And for as a kid, when you're handed to that trash bag and you're told to put your important belongings there, what do you put in there? Like, you're a kid, you know, you don't, your mom's important. Can I put my mom in my trash bag and bring her with me? And so that was when we were taken out and, and the state was sort of fed up. and, And I think part of it was not enough culturally responsive care for my mom and her mental health issues. She got help with food stamps and Housing assistance, but there was a lot more she needed help with in terms of her mental health. and, you know, culturally res- responsiveness around like sometimes the kids aren't there because they're staying with their grandma. You know, um, Asian family right. networks um, tend to be a little larger than nuclear family in America. And so, yeah,
0: no, and I agree with you on that. And I agree with the fact that, you know, number one, there's so many things that we could deal with, you know, when it comes to to truly supporting the family. And even though, you know, your mother with the mental illness that she had, and she truly did have mental illness, there probably could have been a little bit more that the state could have done. Um, but, you know, just seeing you with that trash bag, you know, been there, um, done that. Listen, yeah. everyone, we're going to take a quick break, because there's a couple topics of this story that I have not brought up. And as As you all know, I consider myself a gay man, but first I am Rob, and we're going to talk about what it's like to go into a system knowing that you are a gay man with a religious family. We'll be right back. This episode of Fostering Change is sponsored by Comfort Cases, a national nonprofit that inspires our communities to bring hope and dignity to our youth that are in foster care. For just $10 a month, you can support the Comfort Case mission and help us eliminate trash bags for kids who are entering foster care. For every $10 that you give, Comfort Cases will give a Comfort XL to a child entering the system. Be part of the change. Visit ComfortCases.org. Well, you know what? I say this quite often. There's nothing better than when you're sitting and talking with a friend, and especially when you're sitting there talking with a friend and they're truly opening up and telling their story. You know, I thought about this during the break about, you know, understanding the fact that in 1979, when I came into the system, I carried that trash bag. And here we fast forward and here my friend who, you know, is coming into the system in a generational time that you would think that we have gotten it right is still him and his sister are both being handed a trash bag. Um,
1: were you two split up? Did you go to separate homes or did you stay together? So the four of us were split into pairs. And so for between 1999 to 2003, I was with my sister Tanya. The other, the youngest two were with um, another foster family, um, two different foster families during that time. And were you, did you were adopted, by the way?
0: um you know and you were actually adopted by from reading the book and again I don't want to give everybody all the information because I want you to go out and buy the book and read it my friends but you were actually adopted by almost a I want to call it a religious agency it's all because we have them all over the place but a very uh, a religious based agency and a, re- a family um with very deep roots with their religion actually adopted you
1: Yeah, my adoptive family, evangelical, uh, conservative, to the bone, Um, the church and the community we became a part of were evangelical, Pentecostal, um, specifically, and conservative, living in rural Maine, which is very purple-leaning conservative. And so um, it was hard to deal with the culture shock in itself, but it was also confusing because they were the ones that brought all four of us back together. My, me and my sister Tanya, and then my two youngest siblings, Brandon and Isaiah. And so in middle school brain, I'm sort of like, well, I got to thank them somehow. So I decided to live their lifestyle, to live their beliefs. The greatest way I could show them gratitude was not just being their son and who I was and and who I am, but sort of going um, um, all in into their, their religion and, and, you know, I became a music youth leader, part big part of the youth group, um, and you know, was was seen as a student leader in the Christian school that we were enrolled in. So it was church 24-7, which I'm sure. But you knew
0: you were, I mean, it's a catch up, but you knew, you know, because I knew from a young boy, and there's no way you didn't know, you knew you were gay.
1: Yeah. Um Age eight, I was uh, started experimenting with one of my good friends back when we were in the low-income housing project, who was Kenyan. In, when I was 10, I remember looking at a baseball card and thinking, like, I'm really attracted to this person, in inner dialogue, and I kissed that baseball card. In middle school, um, even though we were, were in a Christian environment, um, there was another um, kid my age, 12, 13, who I was attracted to. And um you know we you know messed around like kids do and and so I knew but I tried to bury it down because I knew my family wouldn't accept it my church community wouldn't accept it and the big fear was if I uh, come out as gay or, or or tell someone I'm gay then I won't have a home anymore yeah. You know, I think that's the biggest
0: fear that we have so much, and especially because it's such a big topic of all the number of kids who are experiencing homelessness um, that are actually teenagers, and it's because they have come out and been their true self and, you know, who they truly are, you know, I remind people all the time that um, being gay would not be a life I would have chosen, you know, especially for when I grew up, you know, I love the fact that I see in my children's schools, for instance, my my youngest son is fourteen. and you know, it's not unusual for him to come home and talk about, you know, somebody just came out and and my kids, you know, all my kids are straight, but they have lots of friends who who are gay. and you know, and so it's it's not it seems more. Easier for a child, even though I do still see those religious based people who feel like that is a choice. You know, you finally come of age and it's time to make the choice to say, do you become the true you or do you continue that path of? what I find destruction and not the physical destruction, but the mental destruction that you are putting yourself through by not being authentic of who you truly are. What was that pivotal moment where you said, this is it?
1: Oddly enough, it was at a Bible college. I think what drove me to coming out was both in the Christian church it's similar to the Mormon church, we're taught morality, we're taught we're supposed to act a certain way, but either because I was just ignorant at what people were actually actually doing when people weren't looking, at college, it was just all all there. Like people go to chapel, but then you know they party, they act in a way that the church people say don't act. And it wasn't a bad thing. It was just like, why are we putting ourselves through the show when we can just be human beings? And that was really the pivotal point where I was just like, OK, now I need to reassess and and sort of deconstruct my worldview, the Christian worldview that I was given. It's like, why did I accept this worldview and I had to give myself a little forgiveness and grace that, you know, I couldn't make those decisions on my own because I was just scared of being kicked out and, and homeless and all those other things. And so a group called Soulforce, which is a Christian LGBT group, was going around to all the Christian campuses um, that opposed gay uh, marriage or homosexual lifestyles, as they put it back then. And they were protesting out on the entrances of each campus. And that was when the entire campus sort of gotten to sort of like, oh, the devil's at our doorstep. You know, we got to pray these gays away. (laughs) And I just was like, that is... So hypocritical and antithetical to everything that you say Jesus taught, and and you know to love your neighbor. And here I am hearing all this vitriol. I was like, I don't want to be a part of this. So I decided to transfer to USM, college here in Maine, and that was really where I found a, an LGBTQ community that helped me to to come out. Wow. Wow.
0: That is, you know, by the way, you and you and my husband have a very similar story. My husband came out when he went to Bible college as well. Um, You know, he was in Kansas. And so um, so so how's your relationship with your adopted parents?
1: When I came out, lots of arguments, you know, they they were asking questions like, you know, why were you faking being a Christian the entire time <laughs> or, or things. By the like, way, everybody, gay people have faith too. Okay? Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, and then it sort of got into sort of like, you know, they saw me going out and having fun with, with friends, parties and whatnot. And my dad, you know, it was sort of delayed rebellious stage and my dad threatened to call the cops, which I knew he wouldn't. And so I think for them, they saw me change quite a bit in those two, three years. And I call that sort of the, the hot years. And then for a few years, three or four years, we sort of settled into a Cold War where just silence, we don't talk about the gay thing. And I chose not to talk about it when I went home for Thanksgiving and Christmas, which I skipped early on, but then I started going to again. And there was just sort of this Cold War not talking about the gay thing for a few years and then I remember my 2014 my first year in law school I went home for Easter and I was just leaning on the uh, kitchen counter and watching my dad cook ham like he usually does with those rings of, of pineapple and you know taking it all in and my mom just comes up and she's just like hey how is your boyfriend out of the blue like four years of not talking about anything related to me being gay and that was a big step you know and I gave her credit for that it's like it was as uncomfortable for her to say it and and seeing her say it was uncomfortable (laughs) but it was very much a different dynamic I think and it started to break the ice a little bit not that they were accepting of me being gay it's just like we need to keep a connection to our son right and now flash forward you know six years later my Grammy Anita is living with with them now and she's in her late 80s she grew up bad because she, didn't, she never had a problem. Like she, if she does, she never said anything about it, me being gay being a problem. So when I go home, my mom and my grandma, like without fail, will always ask me, show us a picture of your roommate because they think my roommate is my partner. <laughs> <laughs> so it's sort of a little more fun now. Not that my mom and my dad are accepting, but there's some progress there.
0: Yeah, there's always progress. Progress is the best. And by the way, you gave yourself grace give them some grace cuz I will tell you it comes around it truly does everybody the book is called moon in full i highly recommend it um it is you know um it truly what it says it's a modern day coming of age story it's you know um I'm 56 years old, my story is totally different than your story, but it's so weird how similar we are and taking that modern day approach, but we still are having the same issues, especially one growing up in a system, being adopted, you know, you here are being adopted by a white, family as I have adopted my four children of color. You raise them differently. You really have taught us so much. I just cannot thank you enough. Everyone, again, it's definitely one of the books of the year. It's called Moon in Full, a modern day coming of age. I'll have the link on here on our YouTube, also on all of our social media platforms. What is they can reach out to you? What is your what's your Twitter and your Facebook
1: and Instagram? So it's all the same, Marphine Chan, M-A-R-P-H-E-E-N-C-H-A-N-N, all one word, lowercase. Website is the same. Twitter is the same. One of the unique things about having a unique name is I get to claim all my... Nice. (laughs) Nice. You
0: wouldn't believe how many, for the, when my book came out for the longest time, how many times they had another Rob Shears picture on my book. So I get it. Listen, everyone, I hope you do exactly what you should do every single day and that's get out there and be a good human until next time. I want to say thank you to each and every one of you for listening or watching the latest episode of fostering change. All of us on our team hope that you've learned something new today and have been inspired to be a good human. Now, just a reminder that you can always find Fostering Change on your favorite channels on Google, Spotify, iTunes, YouTube, and others including, of course, ComfortCases.org. I want to give a big thank you to all of you for joining us each and every week. And a reminder that if you have a suggestion for a guest or maybe you might have a question about today's podcast or are interested in becoming a sponsor of Fostering Change, please don't hesitate to email me personally at fosteringchange@comfortcases.org. Now, that's it for now. Thanks again, and we'll see you next Tuesday. Take care.